This is the Breaker.News podcast for the week of January 21st, 2024. I'm Bob Mackin, publisher of the Breaker.News and host of the Breaker.News podcast. Welcome to edition number 326. The Breaker is your source for news, opinion, and analysis about British Columbia issues, institutions, and influencers. Later, I'll tell you how you can support The Breaker. On this edition, headlines from the Pacific Rim and the Pacific Northwest. I wore a virtual Nanaimo bar to a difference maker. And on the big deal feature, the world's first major elections of 2024 happened January 13th in Taiwan. Lai Ching elected president, but his party lost its majority in the legislature. The result obviously didn't please Xi Jinping in China. So what's next? Joining me from Taichung, Taiwan, is New Westminster, BC-born Courtney Donovan-Smith, a regular contributor to the Taiwan News, correspondent with ICRT-FM 100 Radio News, and co-publisher of Compass Magazine. This is the Big Deal feature on the Breaker.News podcast. Last week, our guest Jim Mullen returned with his occasional view from Bowen Island, And this week, we've got a guest joining me from Taichung, Taiwan, Courtney Donovan-Smith, who has his own connection to Bowen Island. So we got a Bowen Island string (laughs) happening. Before we get to the real reason why Courtney Donovan-Smith is joining me from Taichung, Taiwan, tell the listeners a bit about your connection to Bowen Island. Well, okay, so when I was a kid, I was originally born in New West. um, And then, but when, um, for about a six month period, uh, we moved to Bowen Island and um, I went to school there. And at the time, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time, um, the the population was so small, we had a phone book, but it was a single legal-sized piece of paper with the, the names of, that filled the front, and it went like maybe about halfway down the back. That was the entire population of Bowen Island at the time. Um, and the school that we had, um, uh, they had to take the first and second graders. I was a second grader and they put us into a converted tr- trailer. Um, they didn't, didn't even have like a building classroom for us. Um, and there's just so few kids, they had to mix the grades together. So, um, it was, it was, a it was, it was an interesting time in my life. Um, you know, it was, it was felt very remote at the time, you know, deer would be wandering into your yard and, for some reason, garter snakes were everywhere. I, I assume they still are. <laughs> you are a regular contributor to the Taiwan News, where you wrote into the headline, Taiwan's voters rebuke all political parties. No parties got what they wanted, except maybe the satirical bilingual party. Now, this is an interesting election where the Democratic Progressive Party kept the presidency, but it lost its majority in the legislature to the KMT, the party that's uh, more friendly to mainland China. Walk us through what happened on January 13th that led to the president-elect, Lai Cheng Tu, and uh, where things go from here in Taiwanese politics. Leading up to the election, basically there, there's three political parties. The uh, Democratic Progressive Party, uh, and then there's the Kuomintang, and then there's a new party that uh, is only a little over four years old kind of called the Taiwan People's Party. Now, the primary breakdown in Taiwan politics is not left and right or conservative or liberal. 
It has to do with ideas of sovereignty, identity. So, for example, the the Democratic Progressive Party uh, believes in a stronger Taiwanese identity, Taiwanese sovereignty. Um, and so, for example, they may change the textbooks to be more Taiwan-centric, whereas the Kuomintang, uh, which fled the Chinese Civil War in 1949, officially espouses an eventual uh, what they would term a reunification with China. Um, and so, and they have a Chinese identity. Their, their name is sometimes translated to Chinese Nationalist Party. Um, so, and then the third party, the, the new one, the Taiwan People's Party, they primarily, they, they've, they've tried to carve out something of a path between the two. Um, but sometimes where they actually stand is a little bit confusing. So the, these are the main issues. There were some other uh, domestic issues. Uh, energy security was a big one. That was uh, about extending the lifespan of some uh, nuclear power plants or whether to shutter them on schedule. Um, and then, of course, young people have problems, which I think I'm sure you have there in Vancouver as well, of unaffordable housing. You know, young people can't afford to buy a house, um, you know, and low, you know, uh, in you know, income inequality and the low, uh, you know, the fairly stagnant wages, things like that. But the primary fundamental issue in Taiwan politics is this breakdown over identity and sovereignty issues still are fears that didn't stop of uh, what China might do in the future because uh, Xi Jinping uh, his most recent speeches in the holidays said that the uh, reunification is inevitable. He has said previously that uh, uh, China would even use force to take back Taiwan. Where, where is the cross straits uh, relation going between Taiwan and China? I mean, it seems like it's status quo with the DPP still in power in the presidency, but the legislature is a different story. I should probably clarify one thing there is that the uh, the the People's Liberation Army from China has not uh, carried out any incursions into Taiwan's airspace or territorial waters. That would be an act of war. What they are doing is crossing the traditional median line, which previously was was considered sort of an unofficial border uh, where each other's uh, air forces would not venture venture past. And they've made a lot of incursions into Taiwan's air uh, air defense identification zone, or the ADIZ. So there's a slight difference there, um, because if they actually went into Taiwan's airspace, they would be shot at. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah. So, um, <clears throat> but yes, tensions are high. Uh, in recent years, what's happened is is that the ch Chinese side has been changing the status quo. So I mentioned that median line, which used to be called also the Davis line in, in the center of the Taiwan Strait. So by, you know, these repeated and almost daily incursions into the ADIZ and crossing the Davis line, uh, the, the status quo has definitely been changed. And what they're doing is they're essentially conducting exercises for a potential invasion. Uh, you know, they're training their pilots and, uh, you know, military personnel. They're also almost certainly collecting intelligence on Taiwanese capabilities to respond militarily. They're also wearing down Taiwan's military because every time one of these incursions happens, 
you know, the Taiwanese Air Force scrambles to intercept them. And so what's happening is there's considerable wear and tear on not just the pilots, but also the uh, the fighter aircraft. And of course, China has a lot more fighter aircraft than Taiwan does. So, you know, so there it is taking uh, something of a toll. So these are some of the things that they're trying to accomplish. They may also be, um, uh, they also send out sometimes anti-submarine uh, um, aircraft to try and detect them um, because it's hard to detect submarines off of the East Coast of uh, Taiwan because the water is very deep. And on the west side, because the, the you know, the Taiwan Strait, while it's more shallow, is very, very turbulent. So apparently, I've been told it is kind of hard to detect them. So they're also probably working on their capabilities there as well. Um, now, this uh, election was interesting in that uh, uh, since be uh, Taiwan has become, you know, democratic and held the first presidential election in 1996, What's happened is, is that since 2000, the ruling party has alternated between the Democratic Progressive Party and uh, the Guomindang, alternating, giving, and the, and the voters gave each two terms. So, you know, it'd be two terms under President Chen Suibian of the DPP, then it was two terms under Mainjo of the KMT, then it was two terms under Tsai Ing-wen. And now, if this pattern had held, the Guomindang would have been expected to win this election. However, uh, this was a three-way election and not a two-way one. Um, so the DPP managed to win this one, but only by a plurality. They won 40.1% uh, of the vote and managed to eke out a victory uh, in the presidential race. Now, the legislature, uh, it has 113 members. The, K the DPP used to have an outright majority. They've lost their majority and are now the second largest political party in the legislature, with just 51 seats, the KMT has uh, 152, but there are two independents who almost certainly will caucus with the KMT or the Guomindang. And then the Taiwan People's Party holds the balance of power with eight seats of their own. In your column, you do mention that there wasn't any strategic voting. Uh, now, with a third party, of course, there was some uh, splitting of the vote, and that's why we see uh, you know, the presidential winner with uh, less than a majority, you know, 40%. That's uh, what we see here a lot in British Columbia is the winning party gets around 40%. It's a magic number when you have a three-way race. Uh, but there wasn't the uh, strategic voting that people were, were thinking that there could be. Well, now here's the thing, is that the Taiwan People's Party, their vote base was primarily younger voters. So and they they were much more enthusiastic about their their candidate, and and they don't like the two major parties. And, you know that's why they were voting uh, for the new Taiwan People's Party, precisely because they didn't like the two major parties, um, and also the information they were getting. Um, you know, it's a new party, and they're very very good at social media, and so their information on polls tended to show, the, you know, the the. The polling that they were getting were, were the polls that tended to show their candidate and their party doing better in the polls, whereas a lot of the legacy media would be was reporting on the polls that didn't show them doing so well. So there was not really much of a, a, a strategic, you know, they didn't have that much strategic interest. And they also wanted to send a message, you know, that they were a force. And so this was actually something it was not quite a victory exactly, but, a, you know, a, a, it was a respectable showing for a really young party. 
And then the other thing is, if they hadn't run a presidential candidate, those younger voters would would actually probably have been more likely. Um, I saw one survey which suggested 57 percent of them would have actually voted for the Democratic Progressive Party candidate and not the Guomindang candidate. Um, so, you know, so if they hadn't run a candidate, probably the the Democratic Progressive Party would still have actually won the presidency. Um, but we, we don't know that for sure. Obviously, that's a hypothetical. Now, uh, Taiwan's elections, uh, to watch it from afar, are a lot different from here in Canada as well as the U.S., uh, very festive, uh, very animated, very colorful uh, mm-hmm. election rallies. They they have uh, that, that festive atmosphere to get people animated, and, and it works because uh, voter turnout is more than 70%. Uh, another thing that uh, is different from uh, here in the West is the, the lead time, that uh, the, the new president, Lai Ching-te, uh, he will be sworn in four months from now. So mm-hmm. that's a long period of time between the election and uh, the inauguration. Um, wh- yeah. What are some of the other big differences uh, that, that you see from the West and uh, Taiwan? The rallies here are very festive. Um, they often feature singing, you know, singing along with the candidates, or they sometimes have musical performances at the bigger ones and dance shows. And then what they'll do is they'll have, say, for example, a dance troupe come on, and then, you know, they'll have some party figure come up and and talk for a little bit about the politics and the candidate, you know, and then they'll bring on, you know, a musical act and, you know, but, uh, you know, it, and then you know, when they, you know, when they're actually, uh, when the political figures are actually on the stage, they also interact with call, uh, call and response chanting. So they'll be calling out, you know, you know, vote, 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 vote is, is, you know, um, well, technically it means, um, get elected is actually the, the term they use um and but what's interesting is the way they it's, it's from uh the hokkien language here um but because it uh you know that's not a language that is written very easily uh in chinese characters so they render it as frozen garlic <laughs> and it's stuck and so there's actually a lot of humor uh, in Taiwan's uh, political discourse, a lot of the terminology that they use um, is very interesting. Um, for example, one very common uh, top, you know, one t- terminology is to use the terms hen and chicks. And what the hen is, is the candidate at the top of the ticket. The chicks are downstream candidates. So, for example... The presidential candidate is the hen, and their job is to draw crowds, draw attention to the party, and draw attention to the downstream chicks, which would be the legislative candidates. Similarly, in a mayoral race, the mayor is the hen, and the city councilors are the chicks. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of you know, colorful terminology going on um, in Taiwan's politics. Another thing that is, I think, really important and and very impressive is how Taiwan actually physically conducts the election itself. Uh, This is something that I think the United States could learn a lot from, for example. Um, The way that it works is there are polling stations all all over the country. There's a lot of them. And they have, you know, they have poll workers, 
They have volunteers, people from, you know, the, the parties are there. It's open to the public when they do the vote counting. So the public can be there. The press can be there. They can do their own tally. And what happens is, is when it comes time to actually count the ballots, they do what's called singing the vote. And what they do is they, they take out the ballot. They hold it up over their heads so it's visible to everyone. And they kind of chant out the name of uh, the who the vote goes to. And then on a big board in front of everybody to see, another poll worker adds another tally mark. So now, so there's, you know, usually each polling booth will be responsible for maybe about, you know, a thousand votes-ish, roughly. Um, so the polls end at four in the afternoon. They go through the singing vote routine. And then usually the results are largely in by about eight, maybe with a few straggling polling booths by, you know, nine or 10. But you generally know the most of the results by about 8, 8.30 uh, in, the, in the evening. So it's pretty efficient. Um, it's extremely transparent. It's paper-based, um, which makes, you know, uh, so that, you know, the whole thing is structured in such a way as to build trust in democracy. It's to retain the trust of, of the public. And so I, I think they handle it very, very well. I, th I think that's one of the major differences that, uh, you know, I think other democracies could look at as a, as a model. And not only that, but you had uh, Taiwanese living abroad had to come home uh, and be in Taiwan to vote. Uh, no uh, absentee voting, no advance voting. Uh, that's another aspect because, of course, there are the concerns about foreign interference, especially by mainland China. That's a very live issue here in Canada right now. A mm -hmm. public inquiry starts later this month uh, looking at what happened with the 2019 and 2021 elections. Uh, there's enough evidence that uh, China, uh, especially the Chinese Communist Party, uh, was working in Canada to uh, affect the results of those elections. Um, did any of that manifest in Taiwan? Uh, voters actually have to go back to the city or town where their household registration is. Mm -hmm. So if, if, for example, they live in Taipei, but their family lives in, here in Taichung, they have to come back to Taichung to vote. It's, you know, they're that serious about it. Um, but the obvious concern is there are hundreds of thousands of Taiwanese working and studying in China. And, you know, for those voters, if they could do absentee voting, the Chinese Communist Party, because they, you know, they control basically everything uh, over there, they can just simply tell those Taiwanese, you know, we're going to shut your business down or we're going to fine you for something or, you know, if you don't vote the way that we want. So, you know, there is definitely a lot of concern about that. Um, there has been some talk of allowing people to vote in, if they're here in Taiwan domestically to not necessarily have to go all the way back to their um, where their household is registered. Um, but because, again, because of the way they count the votes and you know, it makes it there. There is a, a logistical reason why it probably makes sense for them to go to their household registration because then they know, they know roughly how many votes are going to come in for that district. Um, you know, plus or minus a few percentage points. Um, whereas if they're voting in different areas, you'd start getting these results for district, you know, that don't quite match up to the household registration, and that could, of course, call the you know the election itself into into question. Um, 
So I think this this helps with the transparency. Now, China did a, a did a, a variety of things to try and influence the election. Um, they used uh, TikTok, Douyin, which is the Chinese version of TikTok, um, various social media, and to try and sow discord and undermine the, you know, the the policies and undermine the government of of Tsai Ing-wen and the Democratic Progressive Party to weaken them. Now, uh, they also did, of course, continued the military flybys, um, and they issued various threats, like, uh, you know, you noted some of the threats that Xi Jinping has been giving recently. But the thing is, is that these threats have been going on for a long time, um, you know, and there were some hot wars being fought, uh, you know, in the, in the 1950s on the offshore islands. Uh, so, you know, this tension has been here for a long time. Um, now, you know, people do ask me, like, how much impact do I think that, that Chinese propaganda and the United Front and their psychological warfare in the Taiwan Strait had on the election? I think not much. What I think it did do is because generally the narratives that they're spreading that try and undermine the Democratic Progressive Party and the current administration, um, the the people who are most likely to believe these things, and a lot of it is just outright false. Some of it is true, and they're just trying to egg it, egg, egg it on. But the thing is that the people who are the most obvious market for this already don't like the Democratic Progressive Party. So how many people you know, in, in the middle did it sway and I would say probably some. So if there's a really, really close race where, you know, the, the difference between, say, the Democratic Progressive Party and the the Kuomintang uh, candidate is, was a very, you know, the, if the KMT candidate won by a very, very narrow margin of, you know, dozens of votes or low hundreds, that could have been a contributing factor. But overall, most of the public here is pretty resistant to it. Finish off on uh, a later note, uh, in, in your Taiwan news analysis of the uh, Taiwan presidential and uh, legislative elections, uh, you uh, mentioned uh, no parties got what they wanted ex except maybe the satirical milingual party. Uh, tell, tell us about the milingual party. I mean, satirical parties in Canada, you know, the, the rhinoceros party is one that uh, is part of Canadian lore. But uh, what about the... Milingual party in Taiwan. Oh, yeah, I remember the Rhinoceros Party. Um, <laughs> they were active when I was a kid. I, anyway, um, um, yeah, they're 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 just kind of, as far as I can tell, they're a joke party. The party actually, the the name in in Chinese means you know we're not bilingual, even though most people in Taiwan are. <laughs> um, you know, uh, they they made you know references to. You know, they made jokes in English in their uh, policy presentation and puns and things like this, even though they're saying that, that they're not bilingual at all. And, you know, it was just a whole series of little puns and jokes in their um, in, in their policy presentation. They only ran two legislative candidates, one of whom said he was doing it uh, because he, he said it was a cheaper way of getting out a marriage proposal to a, a woman than taking out an advertisement. So it was cheaper to register as a legislative candidate and then get the press attention for that 
so that he could get his message to a woman he's in love with in China that he wanted to marry her. He also called on on nobody to vote for him, and he said he wouldn't vote for himself. So, um, you know, I think this party, because, you know, of, of this kind of thing, you know, they got a lot more attention. Uh, and I, I suspect they were just having a good time. And, you know, who knows, maybe his marriage proposal worked. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't heard anything yet, but. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Breaker.News podcast uh, from Taichung, Taiwan, Courtney Donovan-Smith, uh, former, formerly from British Columbia, regular contributor to the Taiwan News, correspondent with ICRT FM 100 Radio News, co-publisher of Compass Magazine, co-founder of the Taiwan Report, and former chair of the Taichung American Chamber of Commerce. That was great to be on, Bob. Thanks. news podcast for around the rim we look at news headlines around the pacific rim in the taiwan news philippine defense secretary rebukes china for criticizing taiwan congratulatory message on january 15th president ferdinand marcos jr congratulated president-elect lai ching tu and said we look forward to close collaboration strengthening mutual interests fostering peace and ensuring prosperity for our peoples in the years ahead the Chinese foreign ministry accused Marcos of violating the One China principle and summoned the Filipino ambassador. Secretary Gilberto Tedoro said he was not surprised that a communist agent would, quote, go that far and that low, end quote. In the Kyoto News, tree that saved lives from 2011 tsunami fetid through storytelling. There is an old withering tree in the northeastern Japan city of Kesenuma that remains standing nearly 13 years after miraculously saving the lives of eight residents after they climbed its branches to escape an impending tsunami following the March 2011 earthquake. The tree is said to have been planted on a bluff that juts out over the Pacific Ocean called Asahizaki in the wake of the 1896 Sanrico earthquake, which occurred off the country's Pacific coast in the Tohoku region and resulted in two huge tsunami waves decimating thousands of homes, causing over 20,000 deaths. In the Hong Kong Free Press, Hong Kong to install 2,000 more CCTV cameras in 2024, top official says total number in city relatively small. Chuk Wing Hing, Deputy Chief Secretary, said the additional CCTV cameras would be installed in densely populated areas or high crime locations. When asked about privacy concerns, he said other countries have more surveillance camera coverage. Comparatech estimated that Hong Kong had 54,500 public surveillance cameras, or 7 per 1,000 people, compared with China, where it is 439 cameras per 1,000. That's Around the Rim on this edition of the Breaker.News podcast. podcast for Cascadia Calling. We look at news headlines around the Pacific Northwest. In the Oregonian, Clackamas County eliminates equity office. The decision to eliminate the equity office as of February 5th comes about eight months after county commissioners debated getting rid of the office and additional diversity and inclusion programs. In King 5, Thurston County judge dismisses effort to remove Trump from Washington ballot. The lawsuit, led by a school teacher, attempted to get the case heard in Kitsap County originally, but it was moved to Thurston County earlier this week. The judge ruled that the state's Secretary of State acted consistently with his duties by law when designated Trump as an official candidate. 
The 14th Amendment bars from office anyone who once took an oath to uphold the Constitution, but then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against it. In the Times Colonist, cancel phase two of Sydney Island deer kill to avoid further embarrassment, says group. Only 66 fallow deer were killed during the first phase of the deer kill, which cost Parks Canada $834,000. Parks Canada is spending $5.9 million on its plan to restore the Douglas fir ecosystem on the island, which involves removing invasive plant species, reintroducing and protecting native plants, and removing all the fallow deer, which have degraded the ecosystem since being introduced to Sydney Island as hunting prizes more than a century ago. That's Cascadia calling on this edition of the Breaker.News podcast. Every week we end the Breaker.News podcast on a tasty note by awarding the goodness of a virtual Nanamo bar to people making a difference. A virtual version of the province's favorite dessert bar goes this week to prospectors, geoscientists, and mineral exploration companies across BC. It is Mineral Exploration Week in BC from January 21st to 27th. You can nominate someone for a virtual Nanamo bar. Send me an email to bob at thebreaker.news. Spruce Hill Contracting, Custom Homes and Renovations. Find more information at sprucehill.ca. That's it for the Breaker.News podcast for the week of January 21st, 2024. I'm Bob Mackin. Thanks for joining me. Did you know that on the 21st of January in 2009, Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip, ending a three-week war with Hamas? Now you know. Send me your feedback. Send me your story ideas to bob at thebreaker.news. Bookmark thebreaker.news. You can also find us at thebreaker.ca. Sign up for the free email newsletter and get updates to your inbox. And follow the Breaker News as news happens on X, formerly Twitter. And you can support The Breaker for as little as $2 a month. For more information, go to patreon.com slash thebreakernews. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thebreakernews. Until next week. <laughs>